Welcome to the ENA Podcast with your host, Dan Campana. This is the ENA Podcast, and this is Dan Campana, the Director of Communications with the Emergency Nurses Association, welcoming you to our latest episode. It's September, it is Sepsis Awareness Month, and to talk a little bit about uh, what is going on when it comes to sepsis awareness, I thought it'd be a good opportunity to, to tap into some of our ENA member volunteers and some of the work that they do through our volunteer committees uh, to talk about sepsis, talk about awareness, talk about some of the history and also what's kind of in the forefront of sepsis and really doing the things that are possible in the ED to improve the rates of compliance and also uh, to minimize people who get severely injured or, or unfortunately die you know, in sepsis-related situations. So to help me do that, I've got Christine Powell and Deanna Gillespie from ENA's Quality and Safety Advisory Council uh, to talk through things a little bit with, uh, with me today. So uh, Chris, Deanna, welcome to the ENA podcast. Thank you, very happy Thank to you. be here. Thank so, you, happy to join you. And uh, so Chris, let's start off with you a little bit. Um, we hear a little bit about guidelines and bundles and things like that. So one of the things that was shared with me uh, as we prepared for the episode today was uh, these consensus guidelines, national consensus guidelines and care bundles were established almost 20 years ago. And um, can you give, give me a little bit of background of what uh, sort of was the impetus for the creation of, of those materials and really what the hope was in, in putting those forth to kind of create some standards, I guess would be one way of putting it. So back in 2001, Emmanuel Rivers and uh, his colleagues put out an article in the New England Journal of Medicine titled Early Goal-Directed Therapy in the Treatment of Severe Sepsis and Septic Shock. Um, and it described some uh, performance improvement activities that the organization had gone to that showed a very nice reduction in mortality associated with sepsis in their organization. There was some really good information in this article that demonstrated that following care protocols for sepsis consistently could result in a decrease in sepsis mortality and through improved care by the care team. From there in 2002, the Surviving Sepsis Campaign was established and the Surviving Sepsis Campaign partnered early on with the Institutes of Health to apply a quality management performance improvement model. And subsequently in 2004, the first set of surviving sepsis campaign best practice guidelines were introduced. Now those guidelines have undergone updates pretty regularly over the course of the last 20 years. And we are on a current version uh, in 2021 and a 2020 pediatric version of these best practice guidelines. So with all of that history, where do things kind of stand right now? Are, are we seeing the numbers in terms of compliance? Are we seeing the decrease in those mortality statistics to the level that everybody had hoped for? Or is that part of the reason why we have something like Sepsis Awareness Month to kind of keep the momentum going to improve those figures in the directions we want them to go? So we are continuing to see high levels of mortality associated with severe sepsis and septic shock. Um, according to some statistics from sepsis.org, uh, sepsis causes one death every 90 seconds. It's the leading cause of death in U.S. hospitals. And our SEP1 bundle compliance through the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid still shows that we are at or below 60% compliance with those SEP1 bundles. So I 
believe we have some opportunity to improve. So Deanna, let me ask you, so why is compliance a bit of an issue at this point that after all these years and, and sort of the momentum of the campaign in that time, uh, that those rates are still kind of in that 50 to 60% range? Um, there's a lot of factors um, involved in that. Um, that's part of the work that our QSAC committee is working on is trying to figure out really what barriers and challenges are being seen at the bedside. What can we do to improve bedside care? Um, and what uh, what are those obstacles along the way? A few of those things that we've come up with um, during our uh, project that we're working on um, can be lack of resources, whether that's staffing, bed capacity, supplies, um, lack of um, onboarding and education, um, training for new staff. Um, we have so, uh, so much turnover with staff, trying to keep the staff uh, trained is hard. Um, sometimes we have issues with um, not having a really great team approach to this. You know, we are super good in trauma responses and we're super good in STEMI and stroke responses, but we're trying to figure out ways to get better with our sepsis approaches. Um, poor compliance with protocols is another barrier that we found. Um, organizational culture can always um, affect bedside nurses as well. We see that across our practice in a lot of um, a lot of different topics, but that's certainly something that can happen with sepsis. Um, and then two other little things that we really talked about too: lack of dedicated performance improving uh, per performance improvement and process tracking. You know, being able to keep up with all that data on the back end to so that you can constantly improve your um, your um, delivery of care, and then incomplete documentation, whether that is barriers with the um, maybe the electronic health record or barriers in the fact that I don't have time to chart because I'm too busy taking care of my patients or whatever. So there can be just so many different things that are causing um, all these different types of barriers to come up. And so um, we are trying uh, with the work in our QSAC committee is um, to see what is working in some of the facilities? What has worked well are at the facilities that are getting the Lantern Awards and all of that so that we can make sure that we share that with the bedside nurses. I want to come back to some of those successes because clearly there is progress that's being made. But before we get into that, I'll, I'll kind of throw this up to you first, Deanna, and I can go to Chris. Uh, when you talk about some of the, uh, the struggles, I mean, clearly those are some universal issues. It's staffing, it's uh, the number of patients that are available. You, I'm sure there's boarding. Everything kind of in the mix comes into into the fray there. But ultimately, um, I believe what I'm hearing is that th these are uh, attainable goals. Um, you know, the reduction in, in some of those statistics is really, uh, it's not unheard of. It's not impossible to come back around to. So when you talk about those external factors, those internal factors, what what are some of the things that you hear most commonly when it comes to um, we would do better if kind of scenarios? Is it really just one of those things or is it all of those things in combination? So I think it's a combination of things um, there, but but there are probably a few things across the board that seem to work better that um, in the groups that have better outcomes, um, there are a few things that um, really kind of resonate to the top. Um, and one um, group that um, we have discussed when we've been working on our project is um, University of Kansas Health System. Um, they were just recently um, published through an ENA um, uh, literature presentation and they spent a lot of time interviewing staff who are getting it right. 
So they really talk to all of the nurses that are being successful with these outcomes and things. And they spend a lot of time trying to figure out, so what are you doing? What are you doing there um, that makes it, it makes things work out better on your shift than it does on someone else's shift? What things have improved and things like that. And so we, we hear about stories like that. We see about stories like that. And we want to make sure that we kind of offer those um, topics and guidelines and things up to the bedside staff. Probably the most common thing that we hear that is really successful is when it can be that sort of hit crew style approach to um, an all hands on deck, um, really rapid response team to help gain the you know IV access for the patient get all their lab work, um, get their antibiotics on board, everything really, really timely. Um, and that seems to be the best outcomes, but the staff st struggle sometimes with those things because of a lot of external factors, right? And so we're trying to figure out what ways can we, um, is there anything that we, we have seen in those practices that will um, continue to improve those um, tag those, uh, those pit crew style approaches, just like we have for STEMI and stroke and trauma for years. Chris, is it about a sense of urgency? Is it about a sense of realizing that these are preventable situations if the right factors are put into place, the right approach is put into place? Is that, is that an oversimplification? I certainly would agree that there is a sense of urgency in recognizing and managing these patients and doing so in a very deliberate way using care protocols. Uh, we find that it is easier for staff to follow a uh, published clinical tool like a checklist at the bedside to help them check all the boxes and get all those things done that should be done. We highly recommend screening for sepsis on the front end because some of the signs and symptoms that patients come in when they have sepsis could be very subtle. And when we put all those things together, we recognize that this patient uh, may be septic and subsequently we need to call the alert and we need to get the team at the bedside and carry out our care protocols quickly. And Deanna started to talk a little bit about some successes. What are, what are some of the things that you've seen that um, are the ones that you want to amplify through the committee's work and across ENA and across all of, you know, emergency care to say, you know, there's no one right way to do it right, but there are plenty of ways that change can be affected. To emphasize several of the items that Deanna talked about, um, we have to recognize these patients quickly, so a standardized screening tool is helpful. We want to trigger some kind of a sepsis alert that calls a rapid response team to the bedside. We want to have those established and standardized care protocols. We want to um, have enough of our team members available to help carry out those care protocols quickly. We want to expedite transfer as well to the intensive care unit for the patients that need that intense level of care. And sometimes that is one of our barriers is moving patients out of the emergency department. And again, an emphasis on making these protocols visible and immediately available to staff, either through a checklist system in the electronic health record, or even a paper checklist that they can make sure they're following through with those, um, all of the individual care needs. 
I do want to emphasize the need though, in addition to some of those items at the bedside, that there needs to be some kind of a hospital process improvement um, initiative, right? So there needs to be champions that know and follow the sepsis literature very closely. So a nurse, physician, administrative champions are important that we've got adopted, published sepsis protocols and order sets at the hospital level. And that usually requires a group of people in the background to come together and do that work. So a multidisciplinary formal sepsis PI program or committee or both um, is helpful. Having an emphasis on it is important. And before I, I had one other question, you know, sort of about what an everyday ED nurse can kind of contribute to this, you know, movement in the right direction. But let's go backward for a second, which is this get talked about enough as nurses, especially new nurses, are coming out of school and into the ED, or nurses that are transitioning uh, to practice to come into the ED. Um, is this something that gets enough attention there, or is it really you only get into it once you're sort of living in the ED environment and you realize? Uh, depending on your culture, it's either a high priority or it's something that's being worked on. So in the organization that I work for, we do start addressing sepsis care as people on board. We do provide learning lessons um, for our new nurses and new physicians. Uh, we run them through an orientation process, which includes a review of our sepsis order sets and protocols. So I, I do feel like we address it early enough and I, I think it's very dependent on the organization, how early they address it and how often they address it. Sure. Deanna, you want to add anything to that? I think that it's, um, it is important to start it at the beginning, like Chris says, when we onboard new staff, um, then constantly re-educate, right? Maybe that's, um, maybe it's a little bit more than just at annual competencies. Maybe it is, you know, something that we implement. Maybe we do some drills every quarter. You know, maybe there's some things that we need to do bedside, um, just like we do for all the other um, high risk um, areas that need aggressive care. Um, and so I feel like um, making sure that, you know, whoever's preceptoring these new staff to our department are also the they're kind of they're the leaders and they're the champions and they're the whatever they take the they take the um, sepsis initiative of the department seriously. Um, and I feel like that's the only way we're going to get additional buy-in from all the new staff and all the new grads and all the new staff that become part of the emergency department is to make sure that the people that are preceptoring them are also championing them, championing this process. Otherwise, I don't think that they'll, we will get quite the compliance and the um, excitement and the, um, you know, the initiative that we want on this topic. Deanna, I'll stick with you for a question to sort of wrap things up a little bit. From the ground up is a lot of time where change happens. And you see that if you read the Lantern Award uh, recipient stories in ENA Connection Magazine month to month, a lot of times those are the changes and the improvements and the data that shows you know, the change that occurred. It starts with a nurse on a shift who saw something, brought it up to someone, and it just kind of catches, you know, catches wind from there. Uh, so from your estimation or, or your perspectives, for the, those frontline ED nurses, the bedside nurses working these different environments in different cultures where sepsis may be a high priority or they may be still working on it to make it more of a priority. What are some things that 
you would say to that individual nurse, if they want to see change or they don't think that things are happening the way they should as fast as they could uh, to use their voice, what would you, what would you recommend to them? So the first thing I guess I would tell them is if there is an opportunity for them to um, sit on a task force or a committee or an organization at their um, department level, um, that's a great way to affect change, um, to affect change. Another thing that we did at a place where I used to work, which I really, really loved is um, we would have our pre-shift huddle. And when we would, when we did our pre-shift huddle, we would talk about successes or challenges from the previous shift that we were all together. And so I think that that's really a nice thing. Hey, we caught X, Y, and Z. Um, and the way we caught it was because this person saw this or this ER tech saw this or whatever. And then we, you know, whatever, or EMS encoded and told us this. And so we were able to um, then, you know, all learn from those successes, successes in our pre-shift huddles and things like that. And um, using the, you know, uh, like whiteboard tracking within our um, our uh, pre-shift um, our pre-shift staff rooms, we we would put successes and things on the board so that staff could see staff could see what was happening. And so if there is an individual nurse who's uh, really um, doing a great job and recognizing and pointing out things and uh, maybe cueing into subtle signs that maybe nobody else is catching. Like, let's start talking about those people and let's start getting them to explain what they're, um, what, what they saw. How did you know? How did you know? And so that you, so that other people can learn from those experiences because that kind of stuff is hard to teach. And so if you can figure out what was it that that nurse saw that made them realize this patient had X, Y, and Z. That's the stuff that can grow our departments and really help our other nurses, whether they're experienced or whether they're new or whether they're a new grad or whatever, or any, any, um, you know, any, any of that spectrum. Um, and so, um, and I, I think too, um, making sure that nurses know that it's really okay that if you have a really sick patient, it's okay to ask for help. It is, does not mean you're weak. It does not mean that you are inept. It does not mean anything except I recognize that I can't meet this time schedule by myself because I've got four patients and there's three patients that are taking a little bit more of my time. So can somebody else take these three patients for me for 30 minutes while I focus on getting all the things done that I need to for this sicker patient? And I think just empowering a nurse to know that it's okay to ask for that help and and know that it uh, know who to ask for. Who do you notify? I can't get an IV. I've stuck twice. I'm going to go immediately out and tell the provider so we can work on a plan B. Let's work on getting another nurse in there, but maybe we need to think about IM antibiotics for this particular patient and we'll get the lab shortly, you know, or whatever. There's just things like that that um, will improve bedside outcomes if we can all learn from each other. Chris, I mean, that, that's great advice that Deanna offered. What, what else would you uh, put out there for that individual nurse that wants to affect change or really wants to find the right ways to effectively communicate what they're seeing and experiencing with this goal of trying to, you know, get these preventable cases, you know, even more preventable and, and lowering them even further? The individual nurse can participate in the performance improvement program. We need to hear that voice. The individual nurse can tell us what their barriers and challenges are. They can offer some solutions or recommendations. For instance, if they're having to fight 
or dig around in the electronic health record to find out how and where they need to document key points of care, then we need to fix that for them. And we need to make it easy for them to interact with the medical record so that they can get the job done. The EHR is not only there for documentation of care, it can actually help drive best practices if we have it built right. So hearing their voice about how easy it is for them to do that, it, it would be very helpful. The other piece that I wanna to touch on that Deanna mentioned is a conversation with EMS bringing the patient to us. And EMS is a very important piece of recognizing sepsis and alerting hospitals and many organizations and regions across the United States now are beginning to work with our pre-hospital care providers to have established protocols and to notify hospitals of a possible sepsis patient being transferred to their hospital, very much like we do for our STEMI and our stroke patients. So that conversation would be very beneficial to our patients because now we know in advance the patient is coming our way and we can be prepared for them when they arrive. One other way, and Chris, I'll let you touch on this as we wrap up, but one other uh, way that uh, every nurse and certainly every ENA member can make uh, a difference or contribute towards change is doing exactly what both of you are doing as volunteers with the, the quality, uh, quality and Safety Advisory Council. Chris, you're the, the chair this year. Uh, just talk briefly about what uh, the work of, of this committee and, and really just what it means to be able to affect change and work on some things in a way that uh, you're bringing a lot of different minds and different people from different parts of the country together to uh, to work on things like sepsis. So I am chair of the Quality Safety Advisory Committee this year. Very excited to serve in that role. I had served as a member of that committee last year and will continue to be a member next year. The committee comes together and we discuss those items and those issues that are impacting the nurse workload and the patient care and the health outcomes for our patients across the United States. And we do focus on several key items, obviously sepsis being one of them. One of the other issues that we're looking at right now is the opioid crisis, especially with fentanyl out there causing so many deaths. At last year's Emergency Nursing 22 General Assembly, one of the proposals that passed was a proposal to educate people about toxicology panels and the fact that many toxicology panels may include opioids, but do not include synthetic opioids like fentanyl. And so we have another subgroup looking at the opioid crisis, developing tools and specifically making recommendations to add fentanyl to our toxicology screens. We're also looking at a few other items like maternal mortality, that's a huge issue, sure. and um, other items that come up at some of our meetings that may emerge throughout the year. Obviously, there's a, a lot that's always on the mind when it comes to quality and safety, and you know, have a, a volunteer group of you know, committee members who are, are dedicated to that and, and are able to give their time to all these issues. And, and obviously, we were here talking today about Sepsis and Sepsis Awareness Month. So I appreciate both the, the time that you offered today for the podcast, but certainly your efforts, uh, Chris Paul and, and Deanna Gillespie uh, on the CUSAC committee to uh, 
uh, to bring things in, 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 uh, that can help all emergency nurses, you know, across the, their practice. So appreciate you both being a part of the podcast today. Thank you very thank you. much for the time. Yeah, thank you for um, inviting us. And it was an honor to be here. You can learn more about, uh, you know, all the efforts going into sepsis across the continuum at sepsis.org, as Chris mentioned earlier. And uh, certainly look for more information uh, throughout the month, um, ENA social media about different different information that is coming out and, and as they assess what's going on with sepsis in their own EDs or in their emergency care settings. With all that, I thank everyone for tuning into this episode of the ENA podcast and look forward to you joining us next time. To learn more about ENA or to become a member, visit ena.org backslash membership.